0: Hello, you're listening to the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast from the Institute for Research on Poverty at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm Dave Chancellor. This is our March 2018 episode, and we're going to be hearing from the University of Virginia's Brad Wilcox about an American Enterprise Institute report he co-authored with Wendy Wong about what they call the success sequence for millennials. Wilcox visited IRP in the fall of 2017, and I spoke with them then. And when we started talking, I asked him to lay out for us what they mean by success sequence.
1: So the success sequence basically is sort of following three steps. The first step is to get at least a high school degree, then to go and work full time, you know, in your early 20s, mid 20s, and, and then to marry before having children. And so it's sort of tapping kind of the importance of education, work, and marriage in people's lives today. I mean, I would certainly contend that those three things are, for many people, kind of pillars of their economic, but also sort of social and emotional well-being. So this report is, is again, looking at how the sequencing of those three things is linked to poverty and economic success for millennials today.
0: And this idea of a set of steps that should be taken before having kids to help promote family and economic stability isn't completely new among researchers.
1: A couple of of writers, including Marlene Pearson and and then also scholars like Isabel Sawhill and Ron Haskins at Brookings have been thinking about kind of, is the sequence of activities that young adults engage in linked to their uh, financial well-being? And so back in 2009, Sahel Naskins from Brookings found that adults who had gotten at least a high school degree and then were working full-time and then uh, marrying before having kids were more likely to be flourishing financially and much more likely to avoid poverty. And so we wanted to kind of test to see if this idea, which is about a decade old, was still applicable to a younger cohort, to today's millennials. And we found in this report that it seems to be still applicable.
0: Professor Wilcox says that one of the reasons he thinks we should pay attention to the sequencing of life events is because, in some ways, it's going against the demographic
1: current. There, are, I think there are a couple of different points one can make about what's happening today for young adults. I mean, obviously, obviously, it's the case that people are taking longer to reach those classic, you know, milestones of adulthood, whether it's sort of securing full time employment or getting married, or even having children. These things are sort of taking place later. But they're also kind of taking place in a variety of different sequences, where today we find among today's millennials, about 33% of them are having their kids before marriage. And that's obviously kind of a a non-traditional route into into parenthood. About 40% of today's millennials are having their their kids after marriage or getting married before having any children. So by the time you sort of track these millennials kind of coming up into the 40s, a higher share of them will have had their kids within marriage. And some smaller share um, of the remaining folks who haven't had kids yet will have their kids inside of marriage. But the, the bottom line is that people are kind of, again, they're moving into adulthood and family life in a variety of different paths. And the question is, is one particular path more likely to put them on a good foundation economically. And we're arguing in this report that indeed one path is more likely to do that for them.
0: Perhaps unsurprisingly, Wilcox and Wong find that for those millennials who have followed these steps of completing education, getting a full-time job, and getting married before having children, the likelihood that they will be poor is it's pretty low.
1: For younger adults who are kind of following those three steps in the success sequence, we find that 97% of them are not poor by the time they reach their late 20s, early 30s. And, you know, more than 80% of them are in a middle or upper income bracket. And again, the question is, is this causal or is this just kind of what we call a selection effect, where the kinds of people who are able to follow this sequence have other traits and characteristics that make them uh, more successful in the labor market and more successful financially? And, And that's a legitimate question. But from our perspective, the sort of very, very act of kind of following these steps in order, we think for the average Young adult, the average young man and woman tends to increase their odds of financial stability and financial well-being as they move into young adulthood and middle age.
0: I asked Professor Wilcox to talk more about each of these steps. So first, there's the question of education.
1: So when it comes to education, again, we're not saying college is the only way to do this, because um, you know, in the United States today, most young adults, uh, even today in 2017, will not get a college degree, not a standard for you know, BA or BS and so we need to think about other educational routes for people to pursue that will land them a decent paying job and so i think you know thinking a lot more about the importance of vocational training and things like it you know advanced manufacturing medical care or health care you know there are opportunities out there that we could do a better job of connecting our young adults to but anyway, so the first part is 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 getting you know at least a high school degree preferably something more than that before you go ahead and, and start your family.
0: Second, says Wilcox, is the focus on the importance of
1: work. And here the idea is really kind of having a full-time job in your early 20s and your mid-20s as the ideal and, you know, being intentional, too, about the kind of work that you're doing. So not spending a long time as a barista, for instance, really trying to figure out a job that would be a good fit for you on at least a medium-term basis or even a long-term basis, you know, where you're getting semi decent income, at least, and also where you're you know you're acquiring knowledge, you're getting connections that will serve you well for the next couple of years, or or, or preferably even longer than that. So encourage younger adults to be pretty intentional and pretty dogged about finding work that is going to sort of fit their skill set, but also give them longer term opportunities, ideally.
0: And Wilcox says that the third step of the sequence, getting married before having children offers a lot of important benefits in terms of family and economic stability.
1: And we're not assuming that everyone's going to have kids. You know, for those folks who are thinking about parenthood, the idea is that if you get married before you have children, among other things, your odds of forming a strong and stable family are much higher. Um, that marriage, for a variety of legal, uh, social, and cultural reasons, tend to engender and reflect more commitment on the part of, uh, of two adults And that shared commitment helps them navigate the transition to parenthood more successfully. I mean, anyone who's had kids knows that they're stressful in terms of just babies up late at night. Or, you know, you've got uh, maybe a teenager who's floundering in in high school or something. Or you've got a a child with some major medical problems. Having kids is stressful. and Being a parent is stressful. And so if you're in a cohabiting or a dating relationship, that stress... I think it's a lot harder to navigate um, as two parents than if you're in a married relationship where you kind of you've made a joint commitment before your friends and family members. You know, legally your status is is different and you've ideally kind of locked into this, you know, this commitment to be with one another until you die. And that helps you, I think, both sort of mentally and and practically handle the stresses and challenges of parenting more successfully.
0: On the other hand, Wilcox says that Americans who live together or cohabit when they're having their first child are about three times more likely to break up than Americans who are married when their first child is born.
1: That instability that people who have kids before outside of marriage experience has real financial implications. If you're a woman, you're more likely to end up as a single mother. If you're a guy, you're more likely to end up as a non-resident father with child support obligations that can affect your, your interest and your willingness to work in the legal economy, you know, not to mention any kinds of you know, legal costs you might incur for some kind of you know, child support or child custody issue as well. So for different reasons, again, getting at least a high school degree, having grants with full-time work in your early 20s, 20s, and then marrying before having kids, we think puts people on a path that is more likely to lead away from poverty and towards the American dream.
0: As Wilcox mentioned earlier, there are questions about causality when it comes to the idea of a success sequence, or whether young adults that are more likely to finish their education, get a full-time job, and marry before having kids are just less likely to be poor anyways. And many of the critiques of this work center around these questions of causality, so I asked him to address this more.
1: I think a lot of people in the social sciences are very skeptical of ideas or of the notion that marriage itself has any Im- causal impact on people, and kind of at a sort of philosophical level, I find that a bit strange. I mean, I think that these are these people would not have any often doubts that college education has an impact on someone, or that um, a steady job has an impact upon someone, or that some arm of the state has an impact upon someone. In other words, for other institutions, I think they're perfectly willing to grant that those institutions have a real impact on people's lives. And for some reason, when it comes to marriage, they're, they're unable or unwilling to acknowledge that marriage might have a kind of a, a causal impact as an institution on in people's lives. And I find that a bit strange.
0: But then there have been other critiques more particular to this report about the success
1: sequence. Some critics, for instance, uh, Matt Brunig, have argued that the success sequence really is just tapping full-time employment. And that if you have, you know, one adult living on his own or her own, working full-time, they're not going to be poor. Or if you have two adults living together, kind of regardless of their marital status, you know, they're not going to be poor, working full-time, you know, both working full-time. And so in Brunig's terms, when it comes to this sort of argument, he says, quote, full-time work is responsible for the low poverty results of the various success sequences, unquote. Or he also says, you know, work does all the work. In explaining the association between the success sequence and better financial outcomes for today's younger adults. Um, and I think what Brunig is missing in all of this is the way in which work and education and marriage are all what we call endogenous in the social sciences. And by that I mean that there's a reciprocal relationship between between work and education, obviously, and between work and also marriage. Um, there's also, of course, household income dynamics too that Brunig isn't really kind of acknowledging. I think he actually knows them, but he just doesn't want to talk about them perhaps or something. I mean, I don't know why, you know, but clearly, you know, the point about household income and work assumes that you have, for instance, you know, if you have, particularly when you have kids in the picture, that you have maybe, say, two parents who are stably living with one another, pooling their income. Um, sometimes you have one parent rely upon another parent to provide financial support for, for the family as a whole. And so if that arrangement, particularly like, again, with the child is unstable, that's going to have obvious implications for their financial well-being that extend beyond just the work patterns of the two parents in this case. So all I'm saying is that work doesn't do all the work when, when you sort of add kids to the picture. In that case, family stability matters. You know, having two parents who are stable living together, either pooling their income jointly or where one parent is at home with the kids, rely upon the other parent to provide financial support. And if they break up, they're more likely to experience poverty and certainly more likely to experience less income. So that's the point that I think Brunig's critique misses. And he also misses the fact that in the United States, people who, who marry before having kids have much stabler family lives than those who don't.
0: Granting that young adults who follow this success sequence are likely to have more family and economic stability, there's still really big cultural and economic forces at work here. So I asked Professor Wilcox how he thinks we should
1: grapple with these things. When it comes to the success sequence, I think conservatives, and I'm conservative, um, would tend to stress sort of the cultural side of this argument more and would sort of argue that we need to encourage younger adults to realize, recognize, and appreciate that there's an easier way to do this, folks. And that easier way is, you know, take care of your education, get a foot up in the in, in the labor force, uh, then get married and then have kids. And if you kind of follow the sequence, your odds of flourishing are, are much higher. And of course, I think that's true. I think progressives are more likely to say that, you know, look, a lot of people have difficulty flourishing in, say, in bad schools or in a difficult labor market, particularly if they don't have a college degree. And getting married in a world perhaps where the partners that seem to be on offer don't seem to be that high quality. And so we need to do more to improve education and work opportunities to make the sequence more accessible to people. And I would grant actually both sides have, I think, an important perspective to bring on this.
0: Concretely, uh, Wilcox says that there are a number of policy levers that he thinks have potential to make this sequence more accessible
1: to people. I think we can do more to... Um, Strengthen vocational education in uh, in our high schools and community colleges, uh, and also apprenticeship opportunities that are connecting young adults um, and, and middle-aged adults, for that matter, to employment opportunities at local firms and their or you know, hospitals, et cetera, schools in their um, in their communities. So it's kind of an educational point to make on the on the employment side. I think we can do more to expand wage subsidies, and I would actually detach them from household structure just to kind of send both it message about the importance of work and to make it more regenerative and also to make eliminate any kind of marriage penalties when it comes to expanding wage subsidies, like the current uh, EITC approach, for instance. And then when it comes to other means-tested public policies like food stamps and Medicaid and child care assistance, I think we need to think about the way in which our means-tested thresholds may discourage marriage, um particularly for working class couples who are often likely to bump against those thresholds. So for instance, if you're in Wisconsin and you're a woman with, you know, say a one year old and you're in a relationship with the father, if you're just reporting, say, your income of, of fifteen thousand dollars, you're gonna qualify for assistance when it comes to child care. But if you marry the father of the child and he's making thirty five thousand dollars, you know, you're not gonna qualify for that that assistance. And so can we do things to try to minimize or eliminate that kind of marriage penalty embedded in our means policies?
0: And Wilcox thinks the framing of this idea about a success sequence and how it's being communicated from a cultural perspective is really important.
1: Trying to think about both public and private ways that we can kind of disseminate this idea of the success sequence to younger adults, particularly working class and poor adults, and let them know this is not just about sort of their own well-being really, but the well-being of their kids. They can kind of, Sequence their lives in this way, their ability to give their kids a stable and secure family are going to be higher, and their kids are going to be more likely to flourish economically, educationally, socially, and emotionally. So, I think being very clear and kind of a public messaging around this issue that this is at least in part about any kids that you might have. Indeed, I think one reason why we have seen kind of a stabilization centered around marriage among college educated Americans who still today get married, stay married, have their kids in marriage at pretty high levels today surprisingly in some ways is because they recognize at some level that their kids ability to thrive is connected to the stability of their own marriages and families and so they yeah they plenty of people hit rough spots in their marriage you know where they're angry or disappointed or even at times despondent about the character or the state of their marriage at that moment in time. But they have an eye on the welfare of their kids and they recognize that, you know, absent, say, a pattern of of, of violence or infidelity, really the best thing for, for my kids is to try to work this thing out, try to stick with the marriage and also recognize that things will probably change as we get older and into a different chapter in our lives. So the point I'm making simply is that I think Upper middle class has come to recognize, sometimes implicitly, sometimes explicitly, that the welfare of their kids is going to be often higher, markedly higher, if they're able to maintain a stable married family lifestyle. And I think we need to extend that kind of that wisdom and that insight, uh, and just, you know, through a variety of different venues to working class and poor Americans, who I think are not as aware of how much their kids' well-being depends upon their ability to forge a, a decent and stable family life.
0: Finally, I asked Professor Wilcox what he hopes people take away from this.
1: So I I think people who are critical or skeptical of the success sequence idea would sort of also argue, I think, that really it's about sort of social structure and that young adults who have come from better neighborhoods, good schools, more affluent parents, you know, are more likely to have the resources they need to follow the sequence. You know, they've gotten decent schooling And we've gotten, you know, a job opportunity through a father's connections. Um, They sort of see marriage modeled decently within their own family and social worlds. It's really all about these sort of structures kind of facilitating the sequence more than the sequence itself. And I think there's certainly some truth to that. We do see that kids from upper income families are more likely to be following the sequence. But at the same time, we do see that there are plenty of younger adults today from low-income families, um, You know, about a third who are kind of following the, the success sequence or are on track with it. And both they and African-American and Latino millennials who, who follow the sequence are much more likely to be flourishing financially compared to their peers, peers who grew up in low-income families or peers who are African-American or Latino, um, who aren't following the sequence. It's clearly the case for African-Americans, for Latinos, and for young adults from low-income backgrounds that they're much, much less likely to be poor uh, today if they followed all three steps compared to their peers who haven't followed the steps. You know, that leads me to think that the sequence is not just sort of a mark of privilege, but also might be a path that is workable for younger adults from a range of different circumstances. And of course, with the obvious caveat that we need to do more to, I think, strengthen the educational employment, even kind of opportunities for education and work but also kind of the relationship culture for working class and poor younger adults and then there's more there's more infidelity there is you know more instability and more distrust of the opposite sex among working class and poor young adults so all those things I think need to be addressed to make the sequence you know more you know more workable and compelling but nevertheless I think for those young adults who can kind of manage to stick with the sequence it looks like it works across class lines and across racial ethnic lines as well.
0: Many thanks to Brad Wilcox for taking the time to discuss this work with us. You can find the full report on the American Enterprise Institute website. This podcast was supported as part of a grant from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Office of the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation, but its contents don't necessarily represent the opinions or policies of that office or the Institute for Research on Poverty. To catch new episodes of the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. You can also find all of our past episodes on the Institute for Research on Poverty website. Thanks for listening.